Good morning to you. And once again, let me wish you a happy new year. It is good to gather together in the house of the Lord to sing praises to Him in worship, to worship together as we pray, to worship together as we serve and fellowship, to worship together as we have an opportunity to give, and to worship together through the hearing and reading and preaching of the Word of God. What a blessing it is to begin a year together worshiping our Lord. Let me invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 31 of chapter 4 through verse 2 of chapter 5 to set the context, but our focus today will be on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Uh, That verse is going to be the verse of the year for our church, the verse that we'll memorize together, uh, that we'll say together each week. Thank you. And uh, so that is the verse that we will focus on today, thinking about the meaning of that verse and uh, what I hope it will help us set as as a mindset as we walk throughout this year, just to let you uh, know where we're going in the next few weeks. Today, we'll be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Next week, uh, as we will be traveling back from Spain, uh, we will have uh, a guest preacher, uh, Kevin Finkenbinder, will fill the pulpit for me. I'm thankful for Kevin's willingness to do that, so please be sure to be here and support him. Then, on January the 19th, through the end of February, we'll start a six-week study on generosity. Uh, You probably saw the slide for it as it was going around. I'll say just a little more about that at the end of the service before we head out today. But that is where we're headed in our time together. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 31, Paul writes this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you, and we thank you for today. We thank you for the privilege and the joy and the honor that it is to gather together as your people, to worship you through our songs and our words and our prayers, and to worship you through the hearing and preaching of your word. So, Father, I ask as we come to your word in this time that you would do what it is that only you can do, and that is open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things through your word. Father, I pray that you would do what you would love to do. Would you send the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to see the glory of Christ that is here in this text, and as we behold that glory together, Father, I pray that you would conform each of us more to the image of Christ. Father, that you would bring salvation where it is needed, that you would bring conviction where it is needed, that you would bring encouragement where it is needed, that you would bring growth and sanctification, Christ-likeness where it is needed, so that as a result of our being together and in your word, we will leave looking more like Christ so that we can live for Christ and make Christ known more effectively in our world. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, so as we sit here on January the 5th, looking out on a new year, I'm sure most of us are thinking, what will 2020 hold? What, what will it hold for you personally? What will it hold for, for your family? Will it hold health? Well, it'll probably hold health. It will probably hold sickness. It will probably hold times of great joy. It will probably hold times of sorrow. And probably hold times of loss and times of enjoyment. We know that this year will hold many things for each of us like every other year has held. And as we look in our nation, uh, this year seems like it will be a divided year. We, we live in a time of division where everything seems to be political and everything seems to be partisan. And 2020 is a political year. 2020 is an election year. And those can be interesting years, sometimes tricky years for us to know how to walk faithfully as believers in Christ in the time and in the place where we live. Add to that fact of the, the partisan division that we see throughout our country, that we live in what's been called an age of outrage, where, where we all have means through social media to express our opinion on anything and everything, and what gets the most attention in those settings often is outrage. But we see it not only there, we see it on television, on the news shows that we watch. And my fear as much as I would hope that 2020 would be a kinder, gentler year than the years past, my, my fear and my expectation is it won't be that. I, I, I feel that as we go and move into a, a new year of politics in our country, the outrage, the, the volume will only increase more and more. So as I've been praying and and pondering and asking the Lord, one of the things that's been on my heart is, how do we live faithfully as disciples of Jesus, as the people here at Cedar Street in, in this time? be very honest, as we go into a, another election year, I, I, I go in with some, some heaviness and hesitancy as a, as a pastor. In 2016, I don't know what it was like with you in your circle, but in, in my circles where we lived, I saw brothers and sisters in Christ be torn apart, friendships wrecked and strained by the, the clamor and the division that that election cycle caused, that that atmosphere in our country caused. And I don't think, as we look at the greater world around us, that's going to be better this time around as we go into this year. So how do we live faithfully as citizens of this nation, but as citizens of God's kingdom in this time and in this year, things we will likely face in our country. Now, I hope, I don't want this to be an overly political message. I don't want this to be a partisan message. Um, I will not ever in all likelihood tell you from this pulpit how to vote. I will encourage you, go vote. Um, I won't tell you in all likelihood, what I think of the political happenings and impeachments and elections and, and those types of things. Now, be involved in those things. Think about those things. Yes, let's be good citizens. But my hope today is to, to point us to Jesus and his word to help us think through how to navigate these times that we live in in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ. My hope to help us in, in this year where all the world around us will be pointing to one thing, my hope is to help us 
think through how to keep the main thing the main thing in this year and beyond. So today, what I want us to do is to look to the hope that we have in Christ. To see together that, that our hope for unity is the people of God, that the cure for the division that we see in our world is found in deeply pursuing Christ's community, actively pursuing Christ's character, and lovingly pursuing Jesus Christ himself. And we see those things laid out here in our verse of the year. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, which says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the, that's the call that God's Word gives to us. That's how we are called, as God's people, to live faithfully in every age. The, the first thing we see here is that it, this verse is a call to live together in Christ's community. Look again with me at verse 32. Paul begins, Be kind to one another. That phrase there, one another, that word, is important to understanding the entire focus of, of this verse. This verse, as all of the New Testament, is set in the context of community. It's set in the context of a local church. What, what's going on here is Paul is writing a letter to the church that's at Ephesus. And, and he's beginning in chapter 4 to call the people of Ephesus in response to what Christ has done for us on the cross to live in a way that glorifies and honors Christ. He begins to call us to put off the old way of living, the, the way that serves sin and the flesh, and put on a way of living that glorifies Christ. And so in doing that, he calls us to, to live that life among one another. Now that word, one another, is what's called a reflexive pronoun. Fun, fun little grammar lesson for you. So reflexive means it's done to yourself, right? So example would be, I hit myself, right? So that's a reflexive. It's me. I hit myself. So when Paul says, love one another, he's saying, live in a way that you have an active commitment and investment in the lives of other people. He's saying, look at the brothers and sisters in the church around you as part of your self. What he's telling us is this new life of community happens in the context of one another, happens in the local church. As we look at Paul's writing, in chapter 2, he lays out this picture of the church, and as often that he does, he calls the church the body of Christ, that Christ is the head of the church, the one who rules over it, the one who commands it, the one who gives it life, and the church is Christ's body. Don't miss the real corporate element of that, the interconnectedness of it. What that means is, is that the church is not just a collection of individuals in a place, right? You can have a crowd, you can have a group of people together in a place, but this language of body, this language of one another, means that we are all part of one another and dependent on one another. Let me, let me put it this way. When, when Paul says to be kind to one another, to forgive one another. That idea of one another in a body is not simply about physical proximity, right? It is instead about active commitment and relational investment. 
Did you get that? One another is not just about physical proximity to other human beings, but it is about relational investment and active commitment to one another's lives and good. Because think about it like this. We have all types of spaces today in which we can be near people. We can be in physical proximity with lots of people. So when you go to Meijer, you are around other people. When you go to Big B or Starbucks, you're with... In fact, it's interesting that we create places like Starbucks that have this illusion of relational connection, right? You can go and you can be with people, but go into Starbucks. And what you see is a collection of individuals with their earbuds in on their computers or their iPads or their phones. There are people in physical proximity, but not at all in relationship with one another. In reality, social media creates that same dynamic. We're near one another, in relationship to one another, but there's no deep investment and commitment. When Paul calls us to one another, he is calling us not just to get together, not just to be near one another, but to be actively committed, to be deeply relationally invested in one another. For us to live in a way, in our world and time, and particularly in a, in a time that is so divisive in our nation, we must be committed to one another. That the way we love and care and gather displays a unity to the world. And here is why. Because our highest allegiance, our highest hope is to Christ and his church. That is the kingdom that we are ultimately investing in. That is the kingdom that is, as we sang, will last forever. That there will be endless days in that kingdom. And so the kingdom that Jesus is building through his church is our ultimate hope. So, so no matter what happens in D.C. or in the U.N. or in the E.U. or anywhere else in the world, that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is in Christ and his kingdom that will last forever. And what we'll hear in our world will actually be different than that. We're going to hear the rhetoric, as we always do in election year, that this is the most important election of your lifetime, and every decision and every word is the most important. Now, it may be, but as often happens, the rhetoric outpaces, and the volume of the world around us can cause us to turn our focus from Christ ultimately to these other things. Now, now, now. We are citizens of this country. We want to live in this time and this place. Yes, we want to be involved in civic affairs. The question is not, ought we be involved? The question is, how are we to be involved? What's our tone like when we are involved and engaged and we are discussing things like politics? Do we get involved in the things of this world and the politics of this age in a way that shows that our allegiance is to Christ and that he is our ultimate and true hope? It's about a, a tone. It's about a tenor. And so one cure for the rage that our society stokes is to live among real people. To, to know real people, because we can live around not real people. We can live on social media, we can live on the television, and we can have opinions about people that are far and distant and not connected. But when we live among real people, with whom we have real disagreements, whom we have to be kind to, who we have to be tender-hearted toward, 
who we have to forgive, it changes everything. It changes all of our perspective. It changes all of our tone. It changes all of our focus. And the way, the two big ways we do that here, to live among real people, is we commit ourselves to this gathering, to this corporate worship. We commit ourselves to life group. We have these venues where we can one another each other, where we can be relationally deeply invested in each other. And so in those places, when we gather to worship, when we gather for life group, when we gather to serve, here's what happens. The way we love each other in these contexts demonstrates the unity of the gospel. When we can love each other despite our differences, when we can disagree politically, when we can disagree about our sports teams, when we can offend one another and yet forgive relationally, when, when we can show, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that Jesus levels every dividing wall that our world sets up, whether that's socioeconomic, whether that's racial, whether that's ethnic, whether that's gender, whether in our day that's political, Jesus levels all of those things. You, you don't have to be rich to come to Christ. You don't have to vote for a certain party. You don't have to have a certain skin color. You don't have to be a certain gender. Everyone can come to Christ because the cross levels the playing field. And so when we come together and love one another, with, despite all of our differences and whatever other disagreements we may have, when we come together around the cross, it shows the world that there is something better and more hopeful. So we live together with one another as the people of God. That's where this starts. Be kind to one another. We live committedly in Christ's community. But in order for the church to truly picture that unity that we have in Christ, our words and our actions must match that confession of who Jesus is. So Paul doesn't just call us to to live together in Christ's community, he calls us to pursue Christ's character. L listen to how he tells us to live. So listen to verse 31. This is the things that he tells us to turn from. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. Clamor is this idea of just like screaming and being loud and raging about everything that's going on. And slander. Put those things away along with all malice. Now, when we think about bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, that sounds a lot like the day and time in which we live, doesn't it? That's, that's what we hear all over the place, all the time. Now, that's not new to our, to our day and age. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to tell the people in Ephesus to put those things away in his day and time. The reality is those are the attitudes of our flesh that sin breeds up in us that we naturally just want to let overflow in everything. We, we let it overflow in politics. We let it overflow in sports. We let it overflow in the food that we like and the music that we like and the weather that we like. We just want everything the way we want it, and that just spills out of us in our sin. But Paul says, no, if you're in Christ, that's not how you live anymore. If, if that's the way we live, if that's the way we live together as the church, if people look at us and see bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, they, they're not going to want any part of that because they can get that anywhere they go. Paul says instead, demonstrate Christ. Demonstrate Christ. 
Look at the contrast. He says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Man, the, the contrast between those two verses, those two ways of living, is like going and, and being out on Lake Michigan in the middle of a storm when the waves are throwing you around and the wind is blowing, and being out on the lake on a calm day at sunset. I mean, which would you rather live in? Which is more appealing to you? I think the, the second. You see, what Paul is pointing us to in these verses is that we are to live like Christ. In fact, it doesn't come out in English, but in, in Greek, these words all kind of rhyme and have the same sound as the word Christ. So Paul is emphasizing, live like Christ, be kind like Christ, be tenderhearted like Christ, forgive like Christ. He's saying, live in a way that when people look at you, when people look at how you treat the church, that they will see Christ. But what does he mean? What, what are all these words mean, right? Because we can say be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving, but, but what's Paul mean by that? Let's look at each of these words. So first Paul says to be kind. I don't know about you, but when I think of kindness, um, often I just think of this kind of like sweet benevolence. Like I picture this senior adult gentleman at the church that I grew up in who always had candy for the little kids, right? That was kind, right? He just had this gentle voice, and he had these soft hands that he'd pat your head with, and he'd give you candy. Like that's kind. Kindness is actually the way Paul's using it deeper than that. This word for kindness is often used for God and for Jesus. It's used in the Old Testament for God's goodness toward his people even in their sin. It points to God's goodness to pursue rebels and draw them to himself. Kindness here means doing what is truly good and best for someone in any given situation. That's kindness. It's doing or pursuing what is truly good and best for someone in any given situation. So there's a benevolence to that. There's a givingness to that. Sometimes that means speaking the right words. Sometimes it means doing the right actions. But when Paul calls us to be kind, he means seek the best for everyone, whatever that situation calls for. In other words, you can recognize kindness because kindness gives and sacrifices. Kindness is the state of heart that puts others before ourselves. So we're to be kind. Then Paul calls us to be tender-hearted. This word for tender-heartedness actually points to, to your bowels, to your guts. That was where the seat of emotions were by this day. But it's an idea of being moved deeply within yourself. It's a deep-seated concern for someone else's well-being. But it's more than a feeling. It's love and concern that moves you to act for the good of someone else right? That's tenderheartedness. It's not just, oh, that's too bad, or oh, aren't you nice? It's a deep moving that says, oh, I love you. Let me serve you. I love you. Let me help you and do this for you. 
This is the, the feeling that in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9, Jesus looks out on the crowds and it says he was moved with compassion because he saw them as helpless, as sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus' response is to send out his people into those fields of helpless, hurting people. Jesus didn't just look and say, oh, that's too bad for them. Oh, I wish someone would help them. No, he sends his people, and then he went himself to the cross and died. That compassion, that tender-heartedness moved Jesus to step out of heaven, to take on flesh and become a man, to live a life on this earth and be rejected and die on a cross for you and me. That's tender-heartedness. Right? Tender-heartedness is not what those commercials with the hungry children or the abused dogs wells up in us, right? You see those and you're like, oh, that's too bad. Or you see those and say, oh, change the channel. I don't want to cry. Tenderheartedness is seeing need and hurt and going after it and doing what you can to meet it in your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's tenderheartedness. So be kind, be tenderhearted, and then be forgiving. So Paul says, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgives you. The idea of forgiveness there is extending grace. It means giving someone favor and mercy and love that they do not deserve. For forgiveness is not a sweeping something under the rug, right? Forgiveness is not just seeing a wrong and saying, well, that's okay. Right? That's not forgiveness. That's not how God in Christ forgave us, was it? God did not wink at our sins. God sent his son to pay the price for our sins, to die in our place. So forgiveness is not just ignoring injustice. Forgiveness is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in spite of them failing us, in spite of them hurting us. Forgiveness is what goes and pursues restoration when relationships are broken. It's a pouring out of grace on one another. It's instead of saying, let me give you what you deserve, saying, let me love you and let us come together. So Paul calls us to live together in community of Christ's people, and as we do that, to pursue Christ's character. And as we do those things, we present this picture of Christ to the world. And the reason that we live this way, the reason that we're able to pursue this Christ-like character is because of Jesus and what he has done for us. So ultimately, the way that we live in a way in a world around us that's divided in a world around us that's filled with outrage, the way that we live in a way that adorns the gospel is that we cherish Christ and his work. Paul closes this verse and grounds everything on this last phrase. So he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So in community, live like Christ. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. This is our great motivation for doing. The fact that God in Christ forgave us, on the one hand, is what motivates us, and on the other hand, it is what empowers us to actually live this way. 
the first thing I want us to think about is that what Paul is saying is that we live this way in response to who Jesus is and what he has done. We are forgiven, so we forgive. He's saying simply, if you are Christ's people, this is what you do. Right? It's, it's like all those, Ge- all those Geico commercials, right? got that spy run on the roof and his mom calls him and it's like if you're a mom you call it the worst time it's what you do right that's it's it's what we do right if you're an apple tree you grow apples if you're a grapevine you grow you bear grapes if you're my dog you run out the front door when it's open it's in your nature because it is what you do what paul is saying here is that we are kind we are tender-hearted we are forgiving because it is who we are It is a response to an actual change that Christ has worked in our hearts. More than that, these attitudes of Christ-likeness, this kindness, this tenderheartedness, this forgiving, this pouring out grace on others, this loving one another, this being able to put down divisions and come together around Christ— is not something that we can do on our own. It's not something we can work up and lather up the strength and motivation to, right? This is not like getting yourself psyched up to do your chores, where you're sitting on the couch on a Saturday, and you're like, all right, I'm going to get up. I'm going to clean this room. All right, we're going to do it. All right, now, now, let's go. Let's do it. And you, and you pump yourself up to go do it. Or it's not like trying to eat broccoli at dinner, and you're like, I'm going to eat this broccoli. Here we go. Okay, smother it in ranch, and we're going we're gonna to eat it, right? It's not like that. You cannot work up the urge and the desire for forgiveness and kindness. It is only produced in us as a result of our being united to Christ. It is only produced in us by the Holy Spirit working in us. But when we are in Christ, when we have trusted Him as our Savior, when the Spirit is indwelling us, we will live this way. And yet... It takes our effort. We, we have to do. We have to choose instead of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. We do have to choose kindness. We do have to choose tenderheartedness. We do have to choose forgiveness. You see, while the Spirit indwells us, we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. So instead, we fan the flame. We go deeper. We persevere. How? By consistently cherishing Jesus Christ. By going back to him in his word, by clinging to him, by loving him, by deepening our relationship with him. Not simply by knowing more facts about Jesus, not being delighted by the facts that we read in scripture, but being delighted about Jesus himself. Now, at times, this, is, this can be difficult to put into words. In fact, I've wrestled all week with how, to, how do we describe the difference between loving Jesus instead of just loving the idea of Jesus, right? It's different because there are things that you can know facts about, right? You can know all types of facts and all kinds of information, but you don't cherish those things. 
You don't cling to them in such a way that it really changes the way you live. But when we come to Jesus, yes, we need the facts about him. We need to know about him from his word, but we don't just love the idea. We love the the person. We love Jesus himself, and so we delight in him, and we cling to him, and we treasure him. That's expressed by spending time with him, by by reading of him in his word, by listening to him through his word, by going to him in prayer, both individually in our own quiet times and spaces. And then it's expressed by coming together with his people and loving them and being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving together with one another. It's not just knowing about Jesus, but it's knowing and loving and cherishing and treasuring him above all else. And here's the reality. This year, pursue Christ in community and pursue Christ-like character and seek to cherish Jesus and his work more, you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're not going to get this right or perfect. Neither am I. But here's the beauty. There's grace. See, God in Christ has poured his grace on us. He's lavished it on us. So in that grace, we come back and we repent and we pursue more. And day by day, moment by moment, we cherish him and he will see us through to the end. And so as we cherish Jesus more, as we know Jesus more, we will then naturally live like Jesus. Supernaturally, I would say. Live like Jesus more. Look like him. And so make him known. So as we, as we sit here at the beginning of a, of a new year, a year that, that no doubt will be filled with uncertainty, a year that no doubt will be filled with clamor, and our culture will be filled with bitterness and wrath and anger and slander. Let us commit together to pursue Christ. Let's pursue him with one another. Let's commit to having a deep connection and love with each other. Let's pursue his character by the power of the Holy Spirit and let that character overflow in our words in our interactions, in our attitudes, on our social media postings, in our conversations around the dinner table or the coffee table, in our hallway conversations, in our life groups, in our fellowships, in our hearts. Let that overflow into kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And so let us live here and now. Invested in this time and in this place and in the people here, but invested in such a way that we point everyone to the great hope of Christ so that we can live for the good of the people here and now for our joy and for the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us in Christ. Father, as we live in a world, this isn't new. It's, it's always been this way. So we live in a world that is everything but Christ-like. Father, help us in this time and in this place and in this year have wisdom as individuals and wisdom as your people to live in, in such a way 
that we are kind and tender-hearted, that we are forgiving to one another as you, Father, and Christ have forgiven us, so that in all that we are, we can point others to the hope that we have in Jesus. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.